The statements and views expressed in the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. I'm your host, Mangala Kinesen. Today, I'm grateful to have Dr. Asen Yek here on the show. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Nyek. Thank you very much for having me. Dr. Nyek is a visiting scholar of the VHC Initiative. Her interests include public procurement, gender, sexuality, and politics. You just recently published a paper on gender equality and public procurement. Can you tell me a little bit about the significance of that paper? Yes, the paper that was just published was published in a, a collection of papers from mostly um, public administration. So this is a big, very big project with more than thousands of entries, and I was invited to uh, participate. What is striking or was striking to me is that when I was sort of reviewing other entries, there was not a single one on procurement. Um, there were contributions on gender and other aspects of public administration. Uh, so I um, thought it would be a wonderful ex a opportunity to uh, bring into the conversation the idea of vulnerability and public procurement. So it was important to me because clearly it is an area that needs, is still in need of, of scholarship. And this an encyclopedia had not um, done that effectively. So this is pretty much the first paper that's been published using vulnerability theory as a tool for analyzing public procurement and gender equality, right? That is correct. This would be the, the first. And, and doing so by bringing in vulnerability as, as a framework uh, of analysis. Can you tell me a little bit about what the literature looks like before you wrote this paper and what your vulnerability analysis happened. Public procurement is sometimes referred to as public purchasing. In some countries, it is called public commissioning. In the, in the Francophone world, it's called marché public, public market. And the lack of a term, a global term is, is a, is a huge problem because sometimes we are talking about the same thing and not knowing what is it that, that we, are, we are talking about the same issues. The state of research so far is that public procurement as a discipline uh, is relatively new. In the uh, American context, the section on public procurement was created within the Society of Public Administration only two or three years ago. That, that sort of tells you where, where research is. But public procurement has been practiced for a very, very long time. The rise of interest in public procurement is really coming from uh, the change in world economy in the 1990s, where we saw a liberalization movement and more capital flows and the opening of procurement to private actors. In, in some contexts, people call it public-private partnerships. So with that in the 1990s, and adding to the fact that the 
conference of women's conference in Beijing in 1995 when it took place and the recommendation one of the recommendations there was to try to to monitor public private partnerships especially in the area of of health to ensure that uh, neither government or private corporations were taking advantage of women especially in the developing world so change in the world economy change in the political um, uh, arena and, and, and activism from women organizations slowly brought together this interest in gender and procurement. However, in terms of academic output, it is a really thin area, uh, surprisingly. Um, in, nine, in 2015, I edited the first journal issue on gender, women, and outsourcing, global outsourcing. And um, I was surprised myself to, to discover that I was the only one. So we are in need of work. And that means we are in need of theorizations that make sense. And I find in the framework that vulnerability offers something that is broad and flexible enough that uh, it helps us or, or frees us from the debate of equality versus equity and really capture the dynamic that is happening when we say public procurement, which is the process through which government acquires work, services, and goods from the public sector to achieve, uh, from the private sector to achieve its public uh, mission. So vulnerability then allows me to think structure not just in terms of the state that needs restructuring, which is the model that has been presented since the 1990s, the neoliberal model, present the states as inefficient, needing to be fixed. And the discourse has been that the private sector, which is said to be efficient, can bring that expertise and it does so through the mechanisms of outsourcing, which means that functions of the states that used to be carried on by public servants were now creating jobs in the private sector through contracting and outsourcing mechanisms. So, so vulnerability then allows me to, to ask questions, interesting question about not just the state, but also the private sector but not just the private sector, but also society, because vulnerability is a human condition. And if we say it is a human condition, it means it is also an institutional condition because institutions do not work in the abstract, they work with human beings. Um, so that's it's sort of the um, a state of research and my excitement about uh, what vulnerability can, can bring to the table. You wrote in your paper about how there are some numbers that we don't have because there's some data that we just don't track. Can you tell me a little bit about that and how that impacts your ability to analyze information and draw conclusions? Oh, I think you are referring to some of the theoretical quarrels, you know, where in um, governance or public-private partnerships or, or public procurement, there is a school of thought that is solely interested in measurements, okay? So we are not interested in the input. 
we want to measure whether uh, where the money is going, but not in the input itself. Now, outcomes and economic accountability is important. I'm not saying it is not important. But measurement in public policy has to always take into account that it is always a political act. You have to be deemed countable to be counted. And when we're talking about gender and public procurement, the fact remains, including in the United States, it wasn't until President Obama signed a, a, an order that the collection of data, disaggregated data based on gender was done at a federal level. So we, we cannot just say that the output tells us about the universe of things. So to say gender is that we are also interested in the input, what goes into claims of efficiency, who is being made efficient and how, who is part of that project and who else is not even counted. Now, one of the great things about public procurement that you can really think about it as a conversation between supply and demand. So the government has, let's say, a need to build a road somewhere. Right? I have this need, I, I write a, a, a tender there and people bid and somebody may win a, a contract. So the contractor is called a supplier, right? So in world economy, public contracting alone is said to be in the trillions of dollars. Yet women led their own business only capture 1%. So clearly, there is a need to mobilize women in that area, which is a huge economic area. But to just do that from the perspective of supply, to, to define gender only from the perspective of entrepreneurship is a perspective that I think is a bit limited. It is needed, but it is limited. Why? because it also presupposes that gender is the kind of gender that is appreciated is entrepreneurial by default. So it is part of this market, marketization of the public sector, meaning that there are almost no conversation about the consumer side, the quality of services that women as consumers of public services receive. The change in the relationship between the state and the citizens when uh, services are outsourced. So these are political dynamics, these are economic dynamics that make it uh, difficult to restrict the conversations to one side, the supply side. Now, when you review uh, national legislations. It is still an ongoing work to incorporate a gender dimension in national procurement laws because there is also this fight because some people want to say, well, we are only concerned with economic output. We don't, it, it doesn't matter whether uh, it is a construction company that hired women or not. All we need is a, a, a bridge that is built. You know, there, 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 there are some people who maintain that uh, position and some people who say, well, um, it, it matters who builds it because 
it matters who captures this market because then public policy should be working towards not just responding. And I think Martha Feynman highlight, highlights this, not just in being responsive, but in being responsible. Now, if we limit the conversation of gender to responsive public procurement, it means that by default, of course, the state will be responding to the group that is uh, the loudest, you know, in, in many ways, because that is the nature of politics. But we cannot say that that is the universe of, of gender. So vulnerability here allows us to really ask the important question about, well, are there instances where the state becomes vulnerable through these, or captured actually, through contracting? This is a very interesting question because the, the, the neoliberal logic says that, well, the, the state is being straightened out, is being helped, but that is not true. If I take, for example, the, ca the case of South Africa, where this expression of state capture is very much part of daily conversation, it is not surprising that all of these cases of corruption uh, are always tied to some sort of public um, contracting. So it is not that uh, the, the synergy between the public and private is devoid or it lacks problems, but not recognizing them is I think empowering a certain kind of entrepreneurship that is not helping to reduce inequalities, but rather perhaps a focus on self-interest to the detriment of, of society. Can you tell me a little bit more about state capture? State capture is a, an expression that is used where the functioning of the state are no longer following uh, the rules of law, but not in a strict sense, but it was the very public, the, the public in, in, in public procurement is sort of set aside so that the private interest is what uh, motivates and um, determine the course of public policy. Uh, what has happened, for example, is that in the case of South Africa, uh, many big contracts were given to legally sometimes, but to associate of people who are very close to power. And this is not just a South African problem. So we have the same problem in the United States. We have the same problem in France and everywhere else. Uh, so these bidding for public markets is really important because when you have public debts, everybody has to pay. The government is not supposed to default. So you can out, uh, overprice a project and sign a piece of contract, give it to your friend who comes and does a, a less than excellent job and then flees the country, you know, but the country will pay for that loan that was taken to execute the development project. This is not just about corruption and, and people really, I'm hoping that we can understand the systemic and long-term impact of this sort of behaviors. But the escape conversation, if you start with the idea that the government is a problem and the private sector is, is a bearer of good news and solutions. And, and we have to change that way by saying, everybody's potentially at least vulnerable here. What is the fate of public in public procurement? That means there must be public values that should not be traded that should not be outsourced, that should not be given to, uh, be subjected to the, the, the whims of um, private interest. 
And unfortunately, even in democratic countries, because these are most of the time legal uh, transactions, a lot of people do not see it as a problem, but we end up also privatizing responsibility. Uh, we do not hold the state responsible. We're not talking about the responsibility, even when we talk about the responsive state. And that is the problem of, of, not, of governance and threat to democracy everywhere today, I think. And more so for vulnerable subjects and gendered subjects. How does all of this play into ideas about unilateral efficiency? Unilateral efficiency, I use that term to express the idea that there is nothing that the private sector can learn from the public sector. You know, you know even in the image of demand and supply. So you, you have a need and I just supply whatever you need, right? It's not an image that helps us see uh, the private sector as intending to or prepared to enter a partnership that transforms the way it conducts itself. But it has to be a two-way street at best. It cannot be that, well, uh, it's all about a contract, execution of plans, et cetera, et cetera. Let me take an example. Let's say a construction company wins a contract. Wouldn't that be nice that somehow the people who are going to be employed to build a road in county, in a village, wherever, be local people, for example. We may say, well, this is transfer of skills. This is a way of building a sense of belonging, you know, but um, it, it will not work. You know, we see, we see this if companies, global companies, go to places like Chinese companies in Africa these days, and they bring their own workers from China <laughs> and execute uh, big, big uh, uh, construction contracts, infrastructure contracts, and, and return to China. You know, over time, these are things that lead to conflict. And, and over time, everybody has, has contracted national debts that citizens are going to have to pay. So the way we structure public procurement are just in, as a matter of paychecks and, and signatures it's not addressing the social issues that need to be addressed. And clearly when it comes to women, it is not helping. I mean, there are cases in Africa where a, a maternity home used to be public and, and free, but somehow has been now contracted out for management to a private company. And the income of, of rural women hasn't been going up, but now there is a, a fee to pay and, and people just, don't, just feel disenfranchised. So if you have money, you can have access to healthcare, but if you don't, you die. You know, so at that point, we don't see what, the, what is public in this public contracting. It, means, it seems in some cases as, as, as private business you know, opportunities. So, so these are things that worries me, especially in developing countries where the, the state plays a key role and the state must certainly do a lot more to, to mitigate the effects of vulnerability in society. What are some steps that you would like to see the state taking? In Africa, for example, Nigeria was, until recently, the only country that mandated civil society participation in the process of public procurement. Again, even then, it, it is on paper. I'm not saying it is efficient, but the fact that people the citizens do not know 
who does what and when you know sometimes people will say oh the government is doing this but they don't even realize that it is not i mean it is the government technically right because it retains ownership but it is not it is not the government because the project has been outsourced so it would be interesting to figure out mechanisms where the citizens understand the process or are more implicated in the process of uh, outsourcing citizen participation and it is being done with gender but it is restricted to women in business and i think that if if we have find or if you know uh, international organizations are finding an interest in getting women in business organized they could do the same thing for civil society uh, it's a matter of whether or not you actually trust that this person or this group of people have a place at the table i think that would be a way to uh, one way to start and then organize better collect collection of, of data um, in terms of holding both government and the private sector accountable uh, because that is democratic duty uh, of all uh, societies of all democratic <laughs> societies so we talked about this a little bit already. What kind of impact would you like your research to have, I guess locally, because it sounds like you focused on countries in Africa for most of your research, and then also globally? Yes, following this paper, I wrote it because I already had a, a project in mind, which is to do an edited volume on gender specifically and vulnerability this time in a global perspective. So I have been recruiting people around the world. So United States, uh, the UK, Indonesia, Jordan, Israel, South Africa, Kenya, what have you. So I am in the process of us organizing that team so that we can now sort of look at vulnerability and run with case studies but I wanted to ease the entry into the conversation about vulnerability for those who are not familiar by, by writing this paper and showing ways of engaging. So after this paper, uh, we, we will probably, I am currently working on having these volumes uh, come together. And what will certainly emerge is that all states are similar somehow, in, including in the United States. And that is the beauty of this sort of research because uh, we are familiar with ranking countries like develop, underdevelop. But when you pay attention to this public-private dynamics and the problems that are being noticed, it turns out that they're actually similar regardless of, of where countries are in terms of their GDP. So that is um, hopefully one impact, and hopefully um, this is something that will be of interest to other scholars and policymakers. Do you expect that there might be any sort of correlation between the types of, I guess, public-private partnerships or um, volume of public-private partnerships and GDP? That is a good question. I, I'm not aware of somebody who has done that research. That is, is there a correlation between the volume of public-private partnership and GDP? I don't know. Maybe that question can be answered from a historical point of view, but it is, it is a very interesting one. Uh, what I know, though, in terms of uh, Africa and the story of public-private partnerships is that it didn't, it didn't work well for Africa. 
the first globalization was a globalization of public-private partnerships. The, the East Indian companies were the early merchants that were sailing through the world with some letters of agreement, the charters, they call them, with, with the kings to go and become quasi-sovereign around the world. So we have seen these sort of public-private partnerships uh, before, but they didn't help the rest of non-European nations. They were used for imperialism and colonialism. And that is a very interesting conversation because there is a, a lot of scholarship that, that show that, that trade sometimes always precede political conquest, you know, call it soft power. And there are a lot of people who, who remain very suspicious about this notion that the public should divest itself completely give itself to, to, to private private interest. So historically, from what I know, uh, it is a model that mainly serve those who are writing the laws and determining what contracting means. But it is interesting that, you know, somebody can, can think about it and say, well, what is happening in the 20th century or 21st century? That would be fun. I'm sure you've been following the news here in the U.S. since you're located here for, for the time being. I'm curious as to your thoughts on the public-private partnership that the Trump dynasty has been working on these past years. I see instances where procurement becomes central to, to policy. For example, uh, building the wall. Uh, I've seen a few articles about who got the contract and how they were positioned, etc. cetera. Uh, you are probably familiar with also the uh, debate about housing young children at the border. All of those things do not happen in the vacuum. These are uh, private companies that are bidding for public money to execute policy. And this is very interesting uh, because the, of course the US is polarized right now, but at least it shows you an instance because when we say, as I said, you know, we don't have a, a harmonized language to say public procurement, you know, or, or purchasing or commissioning, and people don't necessarily understand what is it that we're talking about. So every time the government does not rely on a public servant to carry work and relies on someone else for one month, for two months, for a year or several years, that is outsourcing, right? As appalling as, as some of these um, policies are, I think it shows you the, what, what I'm talking about that Sometimes for certain companies, the bottom line is my dollar, right? It's not about who is being affected. Who, who, how is this enforcing vulnerability or reinforcing inequalities? The same thing can be said about private prisons. Uh, people are out there marching uh, to talk about rights and, and civil rights. But at the core of it, this is a public procurement issue because we have given incentives to business to create conditions where you got to be supplying black bodies to, to prisons. And they don't have to be negatives, you know. You know, uh, the company that brings uh, probably your W-2 is probably an outsource, you know. So, but but these, are, these, are, these are serious um, issues that we have to consider. We cannot just say this 
and not that. And that is why the idea that vulnerability is universal and systemic is really important. But it's a dragon with multiple heads. So we, <laughs> yes, so, so that's what I think. I think uh, we have seen, and I think this is empirically verified that Republican um, administrations tend to rely a little bit more or use a lot of uh, outsourcing and contracting schemes than, than the Democrats. The Democrats will do, but will also use a lot of grants. A grant is not something that you, you pay back or whatever, something like that. I'm not saying everything um, that has been procured uh, is, is wrong, but I'm saying that we see instances where procurement, procurement can be leveraged to enforce or spread racial bias or, or do the things that we don't want to be identified with you know, today as 21st century people. What would you like listeners to remember from our interview today? The first thing is that we are increasingly living, whether we realize it or not, in an era where the government is no longer the sole provider of works, goods, and public services. It implies that private actors, and they can be for profit or non-for-profit, are key actors in the making of public policy. The problem is that they are not directly and democratically accountable. So if we want to stay a democratic society, it is our responsibility to look into these sort of public-private partnerships and to make sure that not only they are fulfilling the financial obligation and contractual obligation, but then they, at the end of the day, are upholding, upholding sorry, our uh, ideas of freedom, of human dignity, so that they are not mobilized, they are not used to oppress or delay freedom for certain groups. And that is what I can uh, leave with the audience today. The government or the state must be responsive and responsible in dealing with the private sector. And the public must hold both the state and its contractors accountable. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit and chat with me about all of this. I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.